Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 212, my guest is Alex Daskalov, and we're talking about whether Bitcoin in custody can be insured. This show is brought to you by swanbitcoin.com, the best place to auto-stack your Bitcoin in the US with incredibly easy setup and low fees. I personally appreciate that Swan is Bitcoin only and dedicated to Bitcoin education. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash Levera to get $10 of free Bitcoin when you start stacking with Swan. And Swan has some news to share. They've had massive demand for daily buys since the day they launched the service. One of the big positives of regular recurring buys is smoothing out price volatility. So buying daily will catch those dips even better than buying weekly. There are a limited number of spots in the Swan Daily Buys beta. So head over to swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys to get into the beta. That's swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys. Knox is a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring their insurance protection covers the full value of their customers' assets, which we'll discuss in this episode. So, for example, if a fiduciary wants to hold $250 million of Bitcoin with Knox, Knox will seek to obtain $250 million of insurance dedicated exclusively to that account and adjustable to volatility. No fractional coverage or narrow scope. Insurance for what it's worth, a tool to transfer risk. If you're a Bitcoin company, investment fund, trust, or family office, check out Knox for your insured custody. Noxcustody.com. Lastly, Unchained Capital, Bitcoin native financial services. Unchained are doing great work to make multi-signature accessible. If you're thinking about your Bitcoin security, why not consider going from zero to multi-sig with Unchained? Now you can either build it yourself with no setup or storage fees, or if you want assistance, there's the Vault Concierge onboarding package where you can have hardware wallet devices mailed to you and have guided setup calls to build your vault together. Prices range from $1,500, which includes two hardware wallets, to $1,200 without the hardware wallets. And that includes $1,000 to go in the vault also. Use code LAVERA for a discount. If you're interested, go to unchained-capital.com to find out more. Now, just for clarity, Knox is a sponsor of the show. However, I invited Alex on because I thought it was worth a discussion for the listeners uh, to have that discussion on the show in its own right around Bitcoin custody and insurance. So here's the interview. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, Stefan. Yeah, it's great to, great to be here. So Alex, I've uh, been following what you're doing with Knox and obviously just recently Knox has started as a sponsor of the show. So listeners be well aware, but I thought there was some interesting stuff here in terms of what Knox Custody are doing and some of the messages that you guys are putting out there in terms of insurance and Bitcoin and how can these two things be combined? Can they Can they be? But let's start with a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Yeah, sure. I think uh, I'll give you kind of a brief rundown of, of how I came into this space, uh, kind of how I came to be involved with Bitcoin broadly, and then certainly um, insurance, given uh, the focus that we have with insurance at Knox. Um, so to really um backstep a little bit here i moved to montreal in 2006 which is obviously a long time before uh even bitcoin came to be um but this ends up being pretty important as far as i can tell when i look back at history because uh, montreal really shaped me um as a person and especially in the bitcoin space um i came upon bitcoin for the first time in the summer of 2010 um and at the time i was practicing what i'll call kind of the three mentions rule which is um, I came to see too many new technologies, too many um, kind of different things and was always distracted uh, and told myself, if I see something mentioned at least three times, I have to check it out. Uh, and certainly if I see it mentioned more than that, then it's something that w- worth getting into. Um, so I'll call summer 2010 kind of my zero to one moment. You know, there was a time at which I had no conception of Bitcoin, did not 
had not ever heard of it, uh, did not understand anything about what it was about. It didn't uh, even register in my in my mind. Um, and I came to see this and I should maybe paint myself um, kind of the kind of person I was at the time. Um, I was absolutely a software um, kind of first person. I was a programmer. Um, you know, I was bouncing around at different projects, seeing what kind of, um, you know, software is being built and what kind of things it could do. Um, so I can't claim to have understood Bitcoin at that moment uh, very well. In fact, I'm certain that I did not understand it very well because had I understood it then as I do now, I would have obviously dropped everything to uh, fo focus on Bitcoin and nothing else. Um, for me at that moment, it was really just, you know, let me download this, um, let me download the source code for this thing, you know, build it from source, um, get a binary going, operate that thing, see what it does, uh, you know, kind of poke around at the source code, understand, understand briefly what it is. Uh, but I cannot, ex I cannot claim that I was getting especially deep at the time. Um, but that, that was my first foray. Um, that summer I was developing some software that, uh, Give it the TLDR was really just a way for people to build, um, kind of release some albums and have anyone pay whatever they wanted for those albums. Um, and at the time, I started integrating with kind of Amazon payments, seeing what it was like to actually get somebody to pay for something over the internet. Um, to be frank, at that time, you know, I had obviously used payment rails, but I did not understand, you know, what it meant to actually, um, you know, send money over the internet. Um, and I came to appreciate just how horrendously complicated the traditional uh, kind of financial services rails were. Um, and it's at the, at about that time that I came to remember, hey, what about that Bitcoin thing? You know, maybe that it was something that is, is worth integrating to the site. Um, and for better or worse, I looked at it and said, well, nobody really has Bitcoin, right? Um, they don't. This isn't something I unfortunately can actually integrate because this isn't actually something that people have. Um, but it's at that moment, I think, that I came to realize there's something magical here because where in the traditional kind of financial services payment rails, I have to integrate all of this old legacy tech and I need to um, get the permission from all of these different providers to actually have anything working um, with Bitcoin, actually, actually just get it working um, without any one's permission. And that was something that I definitely noticed as much as I kind of passed on it because I told myself, uh, you know, folks aren't actually using it. So um, that was a fairly long-winded point about 2010, but uh, a lot of things happened for me then that set the staging ground for everything that I would come to learn later. Um, to kind of run through the years that have passed since, 2011 was my final year of school. Um, about then I came to meet some libertarians, um, kind of get involved with some campus groups. It was my first real exposure then to kind of Austrian economics um, a lot of these folks did not know Bitcoin or point me to Bitcoin, uh, but they kind of proved to me or sort of told me, I think for the first time I came to realize, um, you know, the US dollar is not forever. And I came to recognize fiat currencies for what they were. Um, and I think it's hard to kind of back up historically and understand where you were. I don't think that these two things click together. I'm pretty sure at that time, you know, I was that programmer who had come across, come across Bitcoin and had understood it as a permissionless, you know, payment rails. But I don't think I made the connection between kind of the Austrian economics that I learned about in 2011 and, um, you know, Bitcoin as a technology. Um, kind of fast forwarding. So, yeah, that, that was that was, I think. And that, that's actually a point is it's really difficult to kind of back up and um, 
you know, remember at what point these things clicked. And I think this is the case for, for everyone. Um, it's, you know, a lot of these things kind of, they, they build up over time. Um, but for myself as a technologist, as a programmer, um, like when I came to understand Bitcoin as money is, is frankly an open question. Depending on what your vision for Bitcoin is and whether it makes sense for you know people right now who are mostly holding it and that story, I suppose that also plays into why you wanted to do a custody business, right? Yeah, certainly. And I, it was a long time coming for me to get into, into custody. So um, if I can kind of progress through this point, um, it really wasn't at that time, I was a fairly staunch um, you know, not your keys, not your coin, still something I believe in. I, I certainly believe that, you know, individual users of Bitcoin ought to maintain their own key storage. Um, and it was a long time um, coming before I came to realize why custody would ever be necessary um, and what kinds of things would be necessary for it. Um, so kind of, yeah, and certainly not in 2011 or 2012, but I've come to understand that. Um, I was still at the time deeply just a technologist. Um, so I would say in 2012, then um, I started seeing some of the first uses for Bitcoin um, besides kind of the first uses that, that I saw where I had to discount it. Um, historically, I've been what you'll call a harm reductionist. So um, I believed, for example, that, you know, psychoactives may in the right hands used correctly. Um, be a useful tool for folks. And about that time, I started seeing some of the first, you know, darknet markets and saying, um, you know, maybe there's something here where, um, you know, people can actually use this thing for, um, to get somewhere. Um, and then the technology side of me at this time was really interested in uh, distributed computing writ large. Um, so I really, you know, I came to be fascinated by things like the CAP theorem, the idea that you can't get consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. Um, in a distributed system at the same time, um, and really started seeing that while there were all these kind of distributed databases that people had built in a centralized sense, um, Bitcoin was solving really um, a very interesting problem that that none of them had actually um, you know proven out in any way. Um, and then kind of moving through that, um, about 2013, I would say that was the first time that I started seeing, you know, people getting really serious about this thing, saying things like, I'm going to invest all of my life savings, you know, into Bitcoin. Um, I remember having these thoughts, it was about the fall of 2013, kind of reading these, these posts and thinking, you know, these people, they're probably right, but they're also a little bit, uh, a little bit, a little bit crazy. Like th this isn't something that, <laughs> that I believe at this point. Even though I remember the first tinglings of, you know, I think that if I look back in years time, I'm going to look back at this time and say, actually, they're right. Um, and so that's, yeah, that that's about when I started getting more serious about this whole thing. Um, it was just, and I think this is the case for a lot of folks in the space is um, you see this thing at first, um, certainly when I first saw it, um, I looked at it and said, this is a really neat thing. If it should ever work, it would be. Um, incredible. And again, certainly I thought of it from a technologist standpoint. Um, but after seeing it evolve and not die for years and years and years on end, um, that's when I suppose I got more and more serious about it. So fast forward many of these years, um, and I can certainly jump into kind of what, what I was thinking about uh, in the years of kind of 2016, 17, 18. Uh, when I came to build, you know, came to build Knox. Yeah, sure. So let's talk a little bit about what made you want to start up Knox Custody. Sure. So um, I guess backing up to the kind of not your keys, not your coin point, um, this is something 
you know, I still believe, and I think it's important for everyone to hold their own keys, but um, I came to realize that I was being a little bit naive in the sense that there are many contexts in which, you know, somebody simply cannot hold their own keys um, just because of the mechanics of of some mechanism. So um, you might have a situation, for example, in which um, suppose somebody were doing something like a uh, you know, a Bitcoin fund where they were deciding when to execute purchases um, and sells, you know, somebody came to you and said, you know, I know how to, I know a way to actually grow your stash faster than just buying and holding. Um, of course, that entity would have to maintain control of the coins, maintain control of the keys. I came to believe in the situations in which you are not, you know, you ultimately own or you you are supposed to get at the, um, you know, proceeds of some activity. Um, if somebody else is going to hold your keys, I came to recognize, well, if somebody else is holding your keys, they ought to be fully insured. Um, and it's about that time that I started realizing, you know, none of these safekeeping services are insured to the level that uh, that I would want to see insurance coverage um, if I were actually utilizing them. That's probably the main differentiator that I see uh, in terms of Knox custody. But I, I suppose... How do you sort of address that idea that someone listening might be thinking, well, hold on, isn't custody against Bitcoin's ethos? Yes, yeah, certainly. And, and and that's definitely something that I came begrudgingly to, to kind of um, have to accept, which is it is against Bitcoin's ethos if we're talking about, um, you know, somebody maintaining um, direct ownership of, of Bitcoin as an asset. So I still believe, and, and I'm still very, very staunchly supportive of, and, and the very, very strongly push, um, you know, folks to hold their own keys. If you would like to do the simple activity for Bitcoin of, you know, owning some Bitcoin, um, I still believe that people ought to own their own keys. Um, however, if you would like to operate, for example, a fund wherein, you know, you are holding Bitcoin on behalf of others, then in that case, you not only should not, you know, not only you can hold your own keys, but you, in that instance, should not hold your own keys uh, because those are the keys that um, are being used for the assets of some some other uh, some other party, if that makes sense. Kind of like a, in the case that you are maintaining control of somebody else's Bitcoin, um, for the most part, unless you're a specialized custodian, I came to believe that you should not be holding those keys. I see. So from your perspective, then, it's more about the level of security that, say, a fund would be able to provide on their own versus a specialized custodian. Is that what you're getting at there or something else? Yeah, I think there's naturally kind of a specialization of labor point here, uh, which is if you're, for example, a fund, um, it's very unlikely that you've spent the cycles that you need to to get the kind of, um, you know, security that somebody who is a specialized custodian can attain. Um, and then certainly from our standpoint, um, the ability to actually ensure um, the, these holdings is something that and I'm sure as we'll get into this conversation is incredibly difficult to do. Um, so I came to believe exactly that, which is in most cases, if the, me- the mechanisms allow it, um, you know, folks need to hold their own keys and hold their own coin. Um, but if they're going to delegate ownership onto some other entity, um, that entity, unless they're a specialized custodian, ought not to be holding those keys. Yeah, so I think I take the point about technical competence, specialization, requirements for a higher level of security, and in certain cases, the entity, the structure may not be able to self-custody. But that said, 
could there be some kind of risk scenario where, let's say, Knox is successful and holds 1% of Bitcoin? Would that be bad for the network? Would that be bad for the, for the overall health of the ecosystem? What's your view there? Yeah, it's definitely something that uh, you know myself and everyone at Knox has been troubled by, which is what happens when you know these custodians are successful, and what happens if actually a large percentage of um, Bitcoin in the aggregate is held not by users who are holding their own keys, but by designated entities. Um, I do think that if it came to be a very large percentage of the network, that would be a problem. Um, the way Knox is structured to this day, for example, we say 1%, 1% of you know, the total supply of Bitcoin um, is a supply of Bitcoin in you know, real dollar terms today that Knox is not actually capable of holding. Um, the way, and I'm sure we'll get into this when we talk about kind of capacity limits, one of the ways that you will be able to scale actually the insurance capacity that, that we maintain um, is by having many different entities actually you know, maintain the same infrastructure that we actually ourselves deploy. Uh, so that's certainly one point. Um, I do push back a little bit on kind of the harm to the network in this regard, because while it might be the case that, you know, many different entities are holding on to some percentage of the aggregate Bitcoin, it is still the case that all of the individual holders, uh, if you will, are not harmed. So if you can picture this, you know, you and yourself, myself, we might be holding some amount of Bitcoin. Um, we might be holding our own keys. The fact that some other subset of the aggregate, um, you know, supplies held by centralized venues um, does not take away from our ability to access that um, access the base layer. Um, so, so that's that's still a very neat property of Bitcoin that it does not. While I do not want to see a world in which a large percentage of Bitcoin is held by centralized entities, if that were to happen. You know, you and I and anyone else holding our own keys can still transact our Bitcoin just as we could previously. Yeah, I see. And uh, it it is a consideration that, let's be fair, there are already existing custodians today. For example, you know, Coinbase Custody or BitGo or Anchorage or some of these other providers who already do hold a significant proportion of Bitcoins on behalf of their customers. Uh, they're obviously the messaging is sort of getting out there. It seems that some of the, more of the coins are going out into you know individual uh, custody. But again, there are different entities out there, and some of those entities are just not capable of um, custodying everything fully and doing everything fully themselves. Uh, so probably it's useful now to talk about who are those entities that are not able to hold their own keys? Uh, and maybe if you just want to comment a little bit on your view of that spectrum there of uh, fully owning keys, doing everything yourself over to the other end of like fully custodial and who's who's sort of, who are the kinds of people who it makes sense for? Yeah, so I think maybe there's two kind of points here. Um, one is looking at the kinds of categories of customers that, for example, Knox services. Um, and the other is, uh, and this is actually an interesting point and kind of we can tie this in with the last point, which is what is the spectrum of um, the spectrum of custody, if you will. Um, so on the first point, I'll kind of cover some brief categories for Knox. Um, on the one hand is very straightforwardly Bitcoin businesses. So as a side effect of these businesses operations, they come to hold a large amount of Bitcoin. Um, and we can look at kind of two typical examples of these of these folks. One is uh, Bitcoin exchanges. A Bitcoin exchange, you know, say it buys and sells Bitcoin versus fiat. 
For better or worse, it turns out that a lot of the users of these exchanges themselves do not wish to hold their own keys. And I think that that's maybe a point I should have made on, on, the, on the last point. Um, and as a result, and we all know this, that this is the case, centralized exchanges end up holding a large amount of Bitcoin. Um, this for them is a cost center. It's not something that they want to do. Um, we know these people, it keeps them up at night. It's not, again, a specialized activity that, um, that they want to take care of. But because their own users don't actually want to withdraw onto their own wallets, um, they end up holding these things. So that's certainly one example. Um, another example might be um, a lender, you know, somebody who want, wishes to take Bitcoin as collateral in order to uh, produce a loan has to, by the mechanisms of, um, you know, Bitcoin lending, hold on to some amount of this collateral directly themselves. And again, this is often um, something that they don't want to do. Um, so these are perhaps two examples of where um, it is not possible or it is not desirable so far as the end user is concerned um, for Bitcoin to be held by them, but kind of by the end user. Um, as a second category and something that we've seen a lot of growth in, um, we're seeing a lot of the new entrants into Bitcoin. So say high net worth individuals, family offices, others of that sort, um, you know, they want exposure to the price appreciation of Bitcoin. They want to know that they have access to the physical Bitcoin in the sense that they want to be sure that they are actually owning underlying Bitcoin um, as opposed to you know, just some synthetic. Um, and again, as a side effect of, of this, they need some custodian to hold on to their funds. Um, and then as a last category, there are public funds um, or kind of listed funds. Um, you know, if you want to produce some fund that sits um, in such a way where folks can kind of produce shares for this, kind of redeem those shares um, and purchase those shares, then it would result in physical Bitcoin having to be stored by a third party. So th these are a few categories where, um, you know, Bitcoin does have to be stored by something resembling a custodian. Um, the second point for this is, and this is something that we're investigating internally a lot, is what is kind of the spectrum of custody? So we can look at the case that should be for most users, which is, you know, they hold their own keys. Um, they hold their own coin. They have the full signing quorum. Um, all the way to the extreme end where there exists a custodian that maintains the full key set, um, you know, holds the ability to gain signing authority over um, over some account and the ability to move those coins. In between that, there are, you know, some other models, such as, for example, collaborative custody and something that we're spending a lot of time internally looking at, which is, um, you know, given the advantages of multisig, Maybe it does not have to be the case that 100% of the keys are held by the user or 100% of the keys are held by a third-party custodian. Um, in an M of N scheme, you can kind of get arbitrary levels in between. Um, and that's certainly something that that is of interest to us. And I think one of the ways to battle against um, you know, large percentages of the aggregate supply being held by centralized custodians um, is to start imagining ways in which collaborative custody really, really takes hold in the world. As I can imagine, there might be, obviously, there's some strong benefits there to the collaborative custody model. Uh, but I guess on the the downside there is essentially that company or that trust or that family office or whoever, they have to take certain uh, trade-offs. And one of those might be 
needing to be more active in terms of how they use their own Bitcoin. There might be certain constraints about their own time and so on. Whereas if you're sort of passing that off to a company to do certain automated policy rules, that's a bit of a trade-off there as well in terms of being able to use that as opposed to like it might be a bit more technologically or human capacity wise, it might take a little bit more, right? Yeah, for sure. And this is something you know, we all have to admit to ourselves, these are early days. Um, and it'll be interesting to see the different models that take hold. Um, and certainly amongst safe family offices, um, you know, looking at what the specific risk appetite is looking at what, you know, there's always trade offs between um, security, sovereignty, um, and a number of other properties that you can look at in a custodial system. Uh, but it, it certainly is important to note. And it's interesting for Bitcoin in particular, that we get this interesting continuum, this kind of spectrum of custody. It's certainly not something that we can get to see in gold, right? Um, say when it comes to gold, you know, somebody is either holding onto that gold or um, somebody else's. Uh, we don't get to see this kind of interesting spectrum of, you know, different models by which we can custody coins. Sure. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about insurance as well. So this is something it has been often requested within the space, and yet there are difficulties around actually achieving insurance for custody. So let's just start by talking a little bit about the factors that might make Bitcoin hard to insure. So what does what makes Bitcoin so hard to insure today? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think I can back up a little bit. Uh, I got interested in insurance systems as a software person about six or seven years ago. Um, and that's when I first started kind of getting into insurance, I came to recognize some facets of the insurance industry uh, that would make it difficult to insure Bitcoin, but uh, we can even generalize from there to understand why um, insurance of software broadly is difficult. Um, so insurance, if I can really simplify matters, is just the act of looking at a set of events. Um, so long as there exists some events, and there are some events that are bad and some events that are neutral and some events that are okay, um, so long as I can understand the bad events and understand the extent to which they correlate, um, you know, based on some input parameters, I can likely produce a model um, that I can use to actually price that risk. So as a very crude example, you know, suppose I wanted to insure against the physical destruction of ships, and I had some ships that were sitting in the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, uh, the Indian Ocean, and elsewhere. Um, one of the properties of the world that makes insuring traditional risks relatively straightforward is that most of the bad events that we care about um, have to do with physical destruction. And they typically have to do with physical destruction as it occurs in the real world. Um, and the real world affords us a wonderful property, which is that when items are physically distant, they are unlikely to correlate in their destruction. Um, so for example, a storm in the Indian Ocean that might take down um, some of your ships is not going to take down your ships in the um, Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. What happens in software systems is that a lot of this um, convenience breaks down. Um, suddenly, all of the events that could occur may correlate in ways that you did not previously understand. Um, so this is kind of a point about what why it's so difficult to ensure software systems at large. Um, and Bitcoin really starts to have a lot of these kinds of properties, which is the kinds of events that can occur in Bitcoin um, start looking very much like information risks. So um, you will not see necessarily um, 
physical evidence for some of the risks that we care about. So for example, if agents who are generating keys um, that will be used in a multi-sig quorum come to behind the scenes, you know, copy some of these keys and then use these keys um, in a long range attack in order to steal Bitcoin, that is not going to result in kind of physical evidence for that loss. Um, and so that is one of the major points that makes ensuring against Bitcoin theft and loss so difficult is that it represents the kinds of risks. Um, it kind of represents the kind of properties that make software risk so difficult to ensure, which is that there's not always going to be physical evidence for their occurrence. Um, so that is, you know, broadly speaking, what makes ensuring software difficult and certainly what makes ensuring um, Bitcoin theft and loss difficult. Um, I can run through, I think maybe a useful exercise here is to say, what were we thinking about at Knox when we first came upon this as a risk category? Kind of what events did we want to ensure um, and why were each of those so difficult to ensure? So uh, the properties that we we looked at really were to say, um, and I'll use these to comment certainly on insurance policies as they currently exist or, or certainly existed at the time. Um, one of the things we really believed important is to ensure up to 100% of the value of the funds that we held ought to be insured and ought to be insured in a dedicated fashion, which was certainly not something that was happening at the time. So kind of the run of the mill for insurance policies here is you will purchase some insurance policy. So say you're holding, you know, call it half a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. You might purchase an insurance policy for uh, $50 million worth of Bitcoin. Um, and then you might turn to each of your customers and say, you know, your account is insured up to $50 million. Now, the problem there is if you're holding the full sum, that statement, while, you know, technically true, it's it's a little bit dubious, right? You don't actually have the ability to insure everyone's account up to $50 million if your aggregate holdings significantly exceed that. So um, this is fractional insurance so far as we're con concerned. Um, effectively, you're double spending your insurance policy. Um, and that's something that today, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's a great way for, for Bitcoiners certainly to understand it is to just effectively look at it as double spending an insurance policy. So far as we're concerned, that's not appropriate. Um, and so we really strongly believe that when we say one-to-one -one insurance coverage, we mean that for every dollar of Bitcoin that we hold, we are purchasing a dollar of insurance coverage and that is going to that customer and that customer alone and nobody else. And how about the volatility as well? So it could be the case that, and this can happen in both directions, right? So imagine, you know, it's 2017 and you've bought some insurance and, and the price of Bitcoin is whatever, $4,000 and then it runs to $20,000. Now, in terms of US dollar, well, in US dollar terms, you might not have enough coverage now. And then kind of the flip side as well, if there's a big drop, what do you do then? So I guess the volatility aspects of it are also a challenge in terms of getting the right level of coverage. How do you deal with that? Yeah, so volatility is, yeah, and it's a great point as we run through the kind of the properties of insurance that we think is important. So when I say one-to-one, -one, you know, obviously it needs to also be able to scale up and down with the volatility of Bitcoin. Now, it is the case that there were assets, you know, before Bitcoin, um, for example, any kind of commodities um, insurance that you might want to provide, where there was a daily difference in the your US dollar denominated um, risk that was being originated. Um, so it's not as if Bitcoin is completely novel in this regard, but the kinds of violent price swings that we see with Bitcoin, you know, did not occur for other insurance products. 
Um, it is something that we have managed to deal with. Now we deal with it in terms of kind of bands of insurance, if we will. Um, what we do is one, we back test these things and, and say, we want to tell our customers, you know, given historic price volatility, is it the case that if you bought um, or if you kind of came into our custody, our fully insured custody, that we would not have been able to deal with some historic volatility? I'm proud to say that to this point, um, there is no historic volatility such that we would not have you know, managed to actually um, take that price swing. Um, but we're also extremely transparent and we like to be as open as possible with what our insurance coverage is. Um, and I will note that, yes, there absolutely exist price swings so violent um, that they can push the insurance coverage into a window where um, some holdings might, might no longer be insured. Uh, but you would be surprised at kind of how, how wide of a price swing we can actually take. I see. And when you're talking about historically, are you, are you talking about as, as in a backtesting sense, like you went and looked back at the volatility of Bitcoin like that? Yeah, yeah. In, in the sense of saying, you know, we can't make future promises in the sense that, uh, you know, if Bitcoin popped by, uh, you know, 15x in three, in, in three days, perhaps we can't take that. Uh, but the question is, is there any situation in which our customers would have seen less than one-to-one coverage? Uh, I'm proud to say that historically that is not the case, but I also like to be honest to say that, you know, it is absolutely possible for price swings to be extreme enough to pull people out of the bands that um, that we target. <laughs> well, maybe if, uh, you know, we see that uh, crazy, crazy volatility in the years to come, some crazy hyper Bitcoinization event. But uh, until then, uh, I think th- that's the other point as well around lack of historical data and Bitcoin is still relatively young, right? It only started in January 2009 and here we are in September 2020. So was that also a difficulty and how did you sort of get across that line in terms of having insurers, you know, essentially come around on that factor? Yeah, I think this gets back to kind of, I often like to think about Bitcoin insurance um, in the context of what it means to insure software broadly. Um, one of the other interesting things that happens with software systems is that the time from which a kind of risk originates to when you know people are really dying to get this thing insured, um, that time is reducing. Um, it is reducing for every single risk category. So think of it this way: when the Wright brothers first flew a plane, um, there was no need for you know insurance for aircraft of any kind. By the time that insurance for aircraft was kind of made necessary, the insurance industry had a lot of time to stretch itself to understand that risk in order to provide that kind of coverage. From the time that Bitcoin first appeared, as you can imagine in 2009, you know, nobody was looking for Bitcoin insurance. Now, 2020, um, tons of people really badly need that, uh, need this risk insured. That time span is in the history of insurance, very small. Um, And this is something that we're seeing for risk categories across the board, which is the insurance industry, besides the fact that it has a very difficult time insuring against non-physical um, kind of events, has a very difficult time insuring against events that it did not even know existed less than a decade ago. Yeah, very difficult times and very rapidly changing times. Uh, one other point I was interested to chat about is which threats specifically are being insured. So a couple examples here, we could think of, you know, key loss, uh, maybe um, uh, theft 
or we could talk about uh, internal collusion. How do you think about that? And how do you sort of name and specifically address those? Yeah, sure. So I think we can continue then on kind of the point I started with, uh, which is looking at the different properties that we uh, at Knox thought were important to ensure. Um, So we really looked at this from the very beginning and said, if we were to entrust a third-party custodian with our Bitcoin, um, and that third-party custodian were to claim to be, you know, quote-unquote insured, what properties would we seek? What properties would we demand of it uh, before we deemed it properly insured? Um, So one I've already covered, which is 100% of the funds ought to be covered, as in 100% of the value ought to be covered one-to-one. You made a great point about if you're going to claim one-to-one coverage, it also ought to scale up and down with volatility. Um, The final properties, though, that we looked at were that it ought to be insured against the destruction of key material, which is to say this is the classic, um, you know, I lost my mnemonic or, you know, it's been destroyed or just even though the Bitcoin is still there, the UTXOs are correctly encumbered. Um, I can no longer move them due to the fact that I have lost signing authority over my account. That's certainly something that, of course, we, we, we thought needs to be insured. Um, it needs to be insured against external theft, which is to say, you know, some other, some agent reaching into our system, um, you know, whether by way of directly reaching into the archival layers or anywhere else, um, gaining signing authority over an account and then stealing Bitcoin that needs to be covered. Um, both of these first um, kind of the events, this event and the one I just spoke of are I don't want to trivialize it. They're relatively straightforward to cover. Many people had covered them before. It's still a difficult thing to attain, um, but it's not a kind of monumental challenge compared to the next two. Um, And the next two are that we really believed that theft and loss needs to be insured even against internal collusion. Um, So if you look at the history of financial services and certainly even the history of kind of Bitcoin thefts and losses, um, you know, people stealing from the inside is one, the most common, and two, the most difficult to deal with um, threat. Um, So we looked at it and said, if I'm going to entrust my Bitcoin with some third party, and that third party is composed of what, just a bunch of humans and some processes and some machinery, then I had better have an insurance policy against them stealing from me, um, even if they steal and disappear completely. So that, that was a critical point for us. Um, and it's something that we really hold ourselves to, which is um, it must be insured against internal internal theft and collusion. And if that property is not attained, then the insurance is not, uh, you know, it, you shouldn't even call it insurance, frankly, just because that is that is the key um, activity that you want to be safeguarded against. Yeah. So I think that's um, certainly an interesting um, factor and an important factor, as you mentioned. Also, one of the facts of our current world is that a lot of insurers rely on a reinsurer, which is like an insurer for insurers. And it might be also fair to say that a lot of, at least in the US, uh, a lot of US-based reinsurers, to some level, they might be able to place some level of reliance or some level of comfort gained from having the FDIC to be able to print money or the, the US government could technically, you know, uh, be that lender of last resort, uh, some way to kind of bail out uh, that system. Whereas obviously in a Bitcoin world, you know, that doesn't exist. So I guess someone, you know, a skeptic might think, well, hang on, how are you dealing with that problem? 
Yeah, that, that, that's certainly an interesting point. Um, I think in the present moment where, you know, Bitcoin is at the moment, you know, not yet a proper full world reserve currency um, and insurance for Bitcoin is um, denominated in US dollars. And, you know, a lot of the insurers are, uh, and this is certainly something I think we should get into, which is um, kind of um, what are the regulations around insurers and, and how do they actually come to insure against Bitcoin? Um, but to your point, there exist shock losses, which are losses in insurance systems so large that they could render the insurance system or at least some set of carriers completely insolvent. Um, and in the traditional world, kind of forget Bitcoin for a second, but in the traditional world, um, it would be obviously a horrendous event if a large number of insurers were made completely insolvent such that they could not cover um, the claims that they needed to cover. Um, and in that, those cases, there does exist a lender of last resort in the U.S. insurance system, of course, that is um, the U.S. government is capable of actually backstopping the entire market and saying, you know, we will prevent these insurance companies from falling uh, by way of actually administering these claims. Um, and this is something that there have been a few events in history where we nearly saw saw that situation transpire. Um, certainly actually 2020 is an interesting point and there's a lot of debate at the moment as to, um, you know, whether insurers ought to be on the, on the hook for, um, you know, business interruption, for example, or sort of a lot of the other, um, events that are, have occurred as a result of the reactions to, um, kind of the current situation. Um, it is as complicated a problem for the future Bitcoin-denominated world as it is for the present, which is, for better or worse, there do exist shock losses so extreme that the entire industry can rupture. Um, it is anybody's guess as to what that looks like in, in the current system, um, but it's certainly something worth exploring as we get into a, an increasingly Bitcoin-denominated world. It essentially, it just kind of really drives home that whole point. Uh, as my friend Michael Flaxman says, there are no bailouts in Bitcoin. So, uh, but uh, I think for people who are, I suppose, you you think you want to insure against a certain risk, and you, you you're, I guess, you're more comp you are not as concerned about that kind of extreme extreme level of risk. Well, then this is something to think about. On the last one, I would have to actually model that out. But um, this is one example, for example, why you would not actually want you do not want 100% of Bitcoin to be held by centralized entities, um, even if they are insured, because it is not, so far as I can um, kind of contemplate mathematically possible for you to do that um, in a Bitcoin-denominated world and have the entire system be fully sound. So you have to have some large amount of heterogeneity in terms of the method by which Bitcoin is held. Um, but but this is, yeah, this is, is a topic that I'm sure we'll kind of get through um, as we start seeing increasing sums held by by centralized custodians, uh, but it is important that they not be held by the same entity, or at least not by the same systems. I see. And just in terms of limits, are you able to share anything there in terms of what kind of limits, like if somebody's got a lot of coin, uh, or if, if they're a large entity, uh, is it possible that they wouldn't be able to work with you because let's say the amount they hold is above the limit that you could insure for? Certainly not, not something that we've come to see. Um, we always appreciate a challenge. Um, again, if we want to talk about kind of scaling insurance capacity into um, the kind of scale that it needs to get to, if we anticipate Bitcoin getting into um, 
the kind of realms that we expect in the next five to 10 years. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of work that we at Knox need to do. Um, and certainly the industry at large, um, it is not possible for the current Knox setup to, you know, ensure, for example, five, 10, 50 plus billion dollars worth of, uh, Bitcoin as it stands. I do think, um, and yeah, I do think it is possible in a theoretical sense and I do, in, in a practical sense as well, um, for that to be done. Uh, but there's a huge amount of work to, to be done for that. Um, we have constantly been challenged by customers coming to us, you know, wanting to insure larger and larger sums. Um, so far we have not broken, uh, but it is definitely a very interesting kind of technical challenge as to how we can actually scale insurance capacity for, for Bitcoin. I guess without getting like too toxic about, you know, attacking competitors or whatever, but if you could just give us a bit of a outline in terms of how you're viewing your product and your service as compared to some of the competitors such as, you know, Coinbase Custody, Zappo, BitGo, etc. Yeah, certainly. I mean, certainly a big one is that we're focused on Bitcoin. Uh, we're focused on the Bitcoin base layer uh, and we're focused on increasingly in our roadmap kind of looking at um, the layers that exist above it. Um, we believe internally that a focus on Bitcoin is going to be um, a huge uh, boon for us. I think a lot of folks, we all know that key to building great systems um, from an engineering standpoint is focus. Um, and the fact that we do not have to deal with, for example, thousands of different digital assets, as is the case for most um, custodians, um, is going to be a huge, um, you know, so something really in our favor. Um, besides that, certainly the insurance focus, it's something, you know, insurance is never done any more than a software system or hard hardware system is complete. Um, as great as our, we believe our insurance is at the moment, um, it is something that we are constantly developing. Um, it is something that we strongly believe in that, um, you know, institutions and other folks who are not holding th their own keys or are holding, um, you know, Bitcoin on behalf of others will need this kind of insurance. Um, we really mostly differentiate ourselves on, on those two facets, which is really a hardcore focus on Bitcoin specifically um, and on the ability to insure against thefts and losses that can occur in our systems. Excellent. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the security setup as well. Now, obviously, I understand there'll be some components that you can't disclose as you shouldn't. Uh, but uh, can you just uh, give us a bit of an overview around what you're using in terms of things like multi-signature, multi-jurisdiction, any of those aspects you'd like to uh, highlight? Yeah, I think so. This is going to be difficult to do by voice, but let me give it the, the best shot. And certainly I encourage anyone who would like to learn more to reach out to us. Uh, and we can always, you know, deep dive with some, some graphical presentations. Um, what Knox implements today is a three or four multi-signature um, setup. We generate keys in four distinct cities around the world. We do so in absolute sequence, which is to say kind of no key is generated at the same time as any other key is generated. Each key set is um, completely independent from any other. Um, so when we say three or four multi-sig, we don't mean it's a three or four multi-sig omnibus where, you know, we take some paths down a BIP32 tree in order to afford um, some set of customers' unique addresses. It is the case that at the entropy layer, um, the accounts are completely segregated and distinct. The accounts for each of the four cities are um, vaulted ultimately in four distinct vaults per city. Um, so this results in kind of 16 distinct vaults per customer account spread across uh, four cities, two continents, three countries. 
Um, and then one of the unique things that we do is, um, and this was really critical for us to be able to attain the kind of collusion resistance that we needed in order to be um, insured against the collusion events that we that we are insured against, which is we generate, we have some proprietary HSMs that in each of these sites, we effectively flash with um, raw customer material. And it is the case that when we sign transactions on behalf of our customers, we do so in such a way in facilities that are concentrated in some small small city in such a way that the agents that are resident to those facilities um, do not have a way to collude amongst themselves in order to cause losses. Um, so all of that to say that there is a fairly complicated logistical network um, that, that uh, you know, knocks implements. Um, and it results at the end of the day in the ability for us to make the kinds of guarantees for our customers that let them, you know, rest knowing that the signatures that we attain for them are only attainable if they explicitly ask for them. And um, also, I presume there's also some kind of um, use of Shamir's secret sharing as well as like a backup sort of sharding scheme there. Yeah. So when we do the archives, I mean, there's four vaults per per um, you know per city per per n, if you will, in the M of n, where n equals four um, scheme. Uh, we implement a 204 Shamir secret sharing scheme for each of those cities. Um, so that results in a very large amount of redundancy um, in the kind of key generation layer. Um, and one of the nice things is that we actually require our, we require explicit permission by other parties uh, before we can ever access any of those layers. Um, so effectively what we do is while we maintain ultimate signing authority over the accounts that we generate, um, we do so in a way where, in the usual mode of operation, basically, if you look at the if you look at the private key lifecycle, most of the time that a key spends in its life is spent in call it the signing cycle. In that zone, if you will, our agents do not have access to the ability to actually attain signatures without the explicit permission of a customer, um, whereas we do have the ability to, you know, for example, do things like reconstitute an account if the customer should lose the ability to actually authenticate those transactions. With all this COVID or, you know, et cetera, travel restrictions going on, has that presented a difficulty for you there in terms of access to the different keys that are located in different countries or continents? No. So one, one of the neat things is that because of the way the system is constructed, most of our signing can occur in a single city, even though the accounts are ultimately distributed across the world. Uh, it is only in the very rare events that we need to reconstitute an account that we need to fly out personnel. And this is this is a fairly serious operation. Um, it results in uh, no less than eight flights um, that occur for the, the act of reconstituting an account. Um, in the, call it the restrictions around um, you know, the, the current context, the worst that we would have to do is that our agents would have to, because we reside in Canada, our agents would have to, um, if we're following the laws, our agents would have to quarantine for 14 days, but um, we're still capable of engaging um, all of those those areas. Right. And just for clarity as well, I mean, Knox is based in Canada, uh, but uh, presumably you have customers around the world, right? Yeah, Knox is based in Canada. Um, we really focus on 
Canada, the United States, and the EU at the moment, um, although we are looking at some other jurisdictions. Um, from our standpoint, you know, obviously we, we spend a lot of time looking at regulatory concerns, uh, but it is, you know, we do, we do service, um, you know, folks around the world. It is not, uh, this is not a Canadian only story. Um, and in terms of how the customer interacts, I see there's the Knox terminal and I presume then the customer can set up things like their own internal policies and spending rules on how, you know, how many people need to sign or how many people need to approve for a spend, things like things of that nature, right? Yeah. So one of the things that uh, we were, you know, we received requests for early on was the ability to provide, you know, multi-city support. Um, so, you know, people noted, okay, of course you have your multi-signature set up, you know, it takes many different facilities um, geographically distributed to sign. Um, but, you know, we, the customer happen to be spread across one, two, three, four cities. Um, you know, how can we set up custom governance structures such that we can actually engage your um, engage your service um, and be sure that, you know, we can get that kind of custom governance. Um, one of the things we do uniquely is at the moment, the method by which you access our service is with what we call a Knox terminal. Um, this is effectively a hardened purpose-built computer that is a window into your Knox account um, and allows you to grant us authorization to move, uh, move funds. Um, one of the things we can do, though, is make make it so that you can do things like you know require two out of four or two out of three or two out of however many terminals you have around the world um, to um, actually authenticate some movement um, so that that is something that, that we have um, already deployed so you might be in new york and london and paris um, and say something like you know i wish to produce a wallet where i need both of you know new york and paris or both of new york and london to sign off before a transaction is allowed to move. And in terms of if the custodian, like so if Knox were to go under or go rogue, what kind of recourse is there for the customer? What kind of ability is there for the customer to basically get their money back? Yeah, so this is something we spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, the case law for you know Bitcoin ownership is still getting built up. Um, one of the unique things that we're capable of doing is because the because every account for a customer is ultimately made physically manifest, um, and because they're completely segregated right at the entropy source, one of the things we can actually do for customers is to, and we do this, we stipulate this in the contract, is to say that the customer owns the physical aspects of their own account. Um, which renders Knox a kind of safekeeper, kind of a warehousing service more than anything else. Um, and what that means is that we can actually ride on existing case law to make it so that even in the case of something like insolvency, um, a customer would have ultimate right to the physical artifacts that rent, you know, render their account whole. Um, and then that mixed with a basic amount of information that we provide them um, would allow them to actually manually themselves reconstitute that account. Certainly, it's not a situation we expect to ever get ourselves into. Um, but one of the fears that we've had from the start is to say, um, you know, what happens if the courts rule against us? Um, what happens if, even though we agree with the end customers that, of course, they own this underlying Bitcoin, um, if somehow there's some, due to some strange um, kind of ruling that happens between our founding and this event, 
Um, what happens if somehow the customer is put is not allowed to access their funds, and that's something that we never want to get to. Um, so that's why it was so important for us from the beginning to say that uh, you know customers ultimately own that which um, constitutes their account. Uh, very interesting. So they, in some sense, are able to recover it physically uh, and reconstitute all those you know, pieces of the multi-signature uh, shards, if you will, and um, basically uh, recover the funds in that way. Yeah, th- th- that's right. And r- really, this just comes down to there's you do not want to exist in like, you want to make sure to understand case law as it exists. Uh, and you want to make sure that what you've constructed can allow the customer to get at their funds based on kind of historic case law, um, not on presumptions as to how courts will rule. How have your conversations with, say, regulators or other uh, related parties been around? Have you had to have any around getting them over the line in terms of your setup? Yeah. So, I mean, each of the jurisdictions that we look at, we're we're certainly curious to see um, how everyone is moving. Um, Ultimately, one great thing, and this is another great thing about focusing on Bitcoin, is Bitcoin is not a security. Because Bitcoin is not a security, a lot of the relatively complicated securities law oftentimes does not come into into the picture at all. Um, and we get to ride on kind of, and this goes back to the last point, which is how much of the system can we produce such that it can ride on existing case law, ride on existing jurisdictional assumptions? Um, how can we how can we make it so that we're we're sure that we're not going to overstep some boundary, um, and that at the worst you know customers can get at their funds. So it's been it was certainly a worry going into this, um, but I think we've been pleased to see that one many jurisdictions are acting rationally. Um, two, you know, Bitcoin clearly not being a security is something greatly in our favor, um, and that where we need to spend a lot of time kind of dealing with regulators, they are, at least to this point, they have been behaving, um, they've been behaving well. So what kind of prices can customers expect to pay for Knox custody? If you could just uh, break that down a little bit. Yeah, sure. So our our basic uh, breakdown is as follows. Um, The fee that most people focus on is um, the fully insured custody fee. Um, so we charge hundred basis points for based on the amount of AUM that you're holding with us, um, uh, in order to get that one-to-one insured coverage. Um, what's nice about this is that that fee is less than the premium that you would be expected to pay if you built your own custodial system and attempted to hit insurance markets directly. Um, so that that's, it's a natural point of, you know, specialization of labor, which is, you know, we charge less than you would be charged if you attempted this thing yourself. Um, otherwise, we charge typically a uh, $20,000 setup fee and then kind of $5,000 per additional um, site for each terminal. Um, and then typically a $2,500 per month um, you know, minimum AUM fee, which more or less for the 100 basis points um, fully insured coverage uh, means that you should be holding about $2.5 million um, to make this economical. Excellent. And so also, could you break down a little bit the difference there in hot wallet versus cold wallet as i understand that's also a service you provide yeah so and i suppose here we can talk a little bit about the roadmap one of the things that we developed early on in order to get the kind of collusion coverage that we got from the insurance markets is the kind of collusion resistant tech which makes it so that 
our own agents, even with physical access to the premises that they um, inhibit, cannot cause a loss. Um, a neat thing about that is that if that is true, um, and it certainly is true, then if you mount, the, if you kind of produce a network connected um, version of that custody system, then an intruder, a network intruder, even if they have access to the network with the highest privileges possible, ought not to be able to cause a loss to be to be induced. Um, and so that's kind of we, we basically parlayed a lot of the R and D that we've developed for cold custody into hot custody. It's something that we're testing with some of our current customers and something we intend to deploy um, kind of into Q4 2020. Um, the other point, and this this is still early days for this, is, um, and it kind of comes into one of the questions that you had posed earlier. We're really keen to see how, you know, BIP-174 PSBT is going to lead to a world of different custodial setups um, and certainly ones that span the spectrum from fully hold all of your own coins in a full quorum to these kinds of centralized custody systems as we've seen deployed. Um, and it's something that we're, we're really keen to, it's something that we'll see developed and deployed soon. Um, and we really want to see what it means for either businesses, family offices, uh, but then even in the in the in the medium term, individuals, um, what it means for th for them to actually custody with something that's somewhere, something like a hybrid between kind of fully centralized um, and fully hold your own keys uh, custody. So I guess summing things up a little bit for a person who's got a, a large amount of Bitcoin they're probably thinking, well, okay, 100 basis points. I mean, that could seem like it's a, it's an expensive cost given you know what it is. But uh, I suppose it also could be seen that given how early we are in Bitcoin, uh, that that's relatively cheap compared to the upside uh, potential of Bitcoin. So I guess that there are probably a few thoughts people might have in terms of uh, overall uh, considerations at this point in time. Uh, What's your view on that? And maybe where do you see that evolving over, let's say, the next five years in terms of the cost for insured Bitcoin custody? Yeah, so you can imagine we're quite committed to greatly reducing the cost of fully insured Bitcoin custody. Um, I will note also that for 30 basis points, you know, customers are capable of holding Bitcoin with us um, such that they can use the exact same accounts that are otherwise insured one-to-one. -one. Um, without us buying necessarily insurance coverage. So that's definitely already a far more economical means by which you know folks can actually use our service. Um, but we are greatly committed over the next few years to you know reducing the premiums that we pay. Um, and when we get to reduce the premiums that we pay, we can um, you know produce corresponding savings for, for folks um, who wish to use our service. Uh, we do we do strongly believe though that one to one insured is something that for a lot of instances is necessary. Um, and so far as we've seen, you know, people definitely agree with us, but I agree with you that the rates are higher than, you know, than they will be in a few years. Um, and it's something that we're actively working to, to reduce. Excellent. Uh, so who else is part of the team with Knox custody? That's a good question. So I think, um, certainly it is the case that the team is nearly universally engineers, um, just, you know, software, hardware across the board the kind of things that we needed to do, um, the kinds of things that we needed to build in order for this thing to, to really take hold. 
uh, we're almost entirely in the technical realm. Um, we have between myself and others, um, kind of a very strong interest, of course, in insurance, um, and spending a lot of time, um, within that, um, on a lot of the team, I think a lot of us are quite technical and oftentimes fairly introverted and not exactly out there, um, for those who are more out there. Um, I would say, you know, myself and certainly Thibaut, um, who I'm sure yourself and other listeners have seen, Tibem, um, have, you know, it's really us two who are more vocal than anyone else. Um, but yeah, the, the team is, is, is quite deeply technical um, and something that I'd expect to continue seeing in, the, in this company um, at the end of the day, when you are in these kinds of nascent industries, just um, an ability to just build next generation software and hardware is, is critical. Alex, where can listeners find you and follow you online? Sure. So yeah, so uh, myself, I'm I'm on Twitter at uh, Dasklove, um, and then otherwise you can find us uh, Knox at uh, Knox Custody, um, and I suppose these will be in the in, in, in the in the notes on uh, on this episode. But yeah, it's uh was really great speaking to you, Stevan, and um, definitely if anyone needs in fully insured custody, um, you know where to find us. Excellent. Well, yeah, looks, it sounds to me like you're doing uh, some really interesting work and uh, I'm excited to see where things go with this. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much, Stefan. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels. 